Paul, in writing to the church at Corinth, says this. He says, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. Not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ become no effect. For the preaching of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Then he asks three questions. He goes, where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of the world, here's what God does. It says, for God, in his wisdom, did this. He says, for since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God, it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. He said, for Jews request a sign, Greeks seek after wisdom. But we, but we, but we preach Christ crucified. To the Jews, a stumbling block. To the Greeks, foolishness. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men. And the weakness of God is stronger than men. Now, what Paul has done is in salvation, he's given us the message of salvation, and that is Christ crucified. But then he goes on and he says, but look at look around. He says, but see your calling, brethren, not many wise according to the flesh, not many noble, not many mighty are called, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things that are mighty and the base things of the world and the things which are despised God has chosen and the things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are. Well, that's a picture of the men and women of salvation. So we have the message of salvation, Christ crucified. We have the men and women of salvation, not very uh, flattering, But then we have the means of salvation. Now listen to this. Of him, of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God and sanctification and redemption and righteousness. Why? That no flesh should glory in his presence. Now, if you will, turn in your Bibles to to the first 1 Corinthians, the first chapter, and let's unpack that a little bit and see if we can understand what all that means. I want you to know right away that Paul and I have something very much in common. We can both be (laughs) long-winded. Now, with Paul, he was long-winded one time, and one fellow fell asleep, fell out of the window, and Paul went, stopped the preaching, went and revised the man. Well, I want you to know if you fall asleep while I'm preaching, you're on your own. <laughs> I think when we look at this passage, 
and I've studied this passage for years, it sometimes seems out of place to me. I mean, we're talking about, first of all, Paul is addressing an issue. And believe me, the Corinthians had issues. Um, Paul is addressing, actually, in 1 Corinthians, about 11 different issues. He chooses his first one, but it's right after he's given all these compliments that contain great theological um, themes in them. The first eight or nine verses, Paul talks about the second coming of, of Christ twice. He talks about the assurance of the believer. He talks about grace. He talks about peace, about the calling of God, about sanctification. But then he launches into divisions in the church. Right after that, he talks about our focal passage that I just quoted for you this morning. Now, that seems odd to me. And that's one of the reasons I actually studied this passage, because it just seemed out of place. For instance, if you were uh, having it as a pastor, having to deal with divisions in the church, was the first thing comes to you, oh, we just need to talk about the wisdom of God. You know, divisions are a big deal. They're all over the place. I always, always find it interesting when I see something like um, Harmony Baptist Church. I th- say to myself, yeah, that one probably started as a result of a split somewhere. <laughs> but Paul had to deal with splits and, and unity, not so much splits, but with unity in just about every letter that he wrote. He had to deal with it with the Philippians, and he was so complimentary of the Philippians, but yet all the way through there, he warns them, you're unified, but stay unified. Fight for unity. You know, there were a couple of ladies in the church that had a little spit going, you know. We, we see that in the fourth chapter, but eh. So a little, bit of, of, a little bit of dissension, but for the most part, that church at, 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 in, uh, in the Philippian church was very, very unified, but yet Paul kept warning them. Almost every single letter in the New Testament has some warning about unity, about maintaining unity. But why is wisdom all of a sudden, the answer to that. That seems odd to me. It should seem odd to you. I would never have thought of that. When we think of wisdom literature, we don't think of 1 Corinthians 1. I think of divisions, but I don't think of wisdom. But yet, that's what Paul is, is talking about here. But it's a specific kind of wisdom. It's not just a general wisdom like we might find in Proverbs. And in Proverbs, you can find wisdom for just about everything, whether it's your finances whether it's, whether it's getting counsel, whether it's drinking, and anger, all kinds of wisdom is in Proverbs. But when I think of Proverbs, or think of wisdom, I don't necessarily think of 1 Corinthians. But yet, that's what we have here. But it's a, it's a, it's a wisdom that focuses in on one specific area, and that's the cross of Christ. That's the wisdom he's talking about, and that's what's driving the, um, the issue here and the solution. Now, I submit to you that um, many commentators, when they come to Corinthians, they talk about how, what a big problem it is. And that Corinth had so many issues and that they were a good church that had really gone bad. Well, remember, commentators are commenters. They're people that comment on the scriptures. Sometimes they're right, sometimes they're wrong. But that's why they're called commentators. And you've got to kind of separate those two and you'll kind of see what I mean. They're commentators. So sometimes those taters don't get it right. I don't think this is a good church that's gone bad. I think this is a young church that's struggling to do good. 
which is true, if you think about it, of every single New Testament church. They're all new. In our Sunday school class, we shared some testimonies, and many of the testimonies went something like this. I was raised in a Christian church in a Christian home. That can't be said about a single church member in the New Testament. Think about it. They weren't raised in a Christian home. They were raised in a pagan society. They didn't know anything about the Old Testament. There, maybe a few Jews. Remember, Paul, went on his second missionary journey, he established the church at Corinth and stayed there for about 18 months. But he was kicked out of the synagogue from the Jews and then went to the Gentiles. And he says that very specifically. Out of that group were, the, were a few Jews, actually, the leader of the, of the synagogue came to know Christ along with all, all of his uh, family. But almost everybody in that church was a Gentile. They knew nothing about the Old Testament. What kind of environment did they come from? And they came from the same kind of environment almost every other New Testament believer came from. And that's this. A pagan society that knew nothing of the true God, never heard of sanctification, never heard of redemption, and in Corinth in particular, it was a terrible city. In terms of morality, it ranked it probably number one. Full of philosophers, full of different kind of religions, different kind of um, people that coming and going within the city. So this is not a well, even though Paul spent 18 months, we can't say this is a long established great first Baptist church of Corinth that's been steeped in doctrine and then all of a sudden they go bad. No. They were struggling. It was a young church struggling to do good. And it was a young church that was struggling to get rid of what we call our grave clothes and embrace the grace clothes of Christ. That's what I think this church is about. So often a commentator will say, well, they, um, they brought the, um, there was a good church, but it was being influenced by the world. Listen, these people came out of the world. Yeah, they were influenced by the world, but they were struggling to get rid of those things that, that they already knew. But they did have problems. Now, as we go through here, I want us to understand also the, um, the fact that it seems odd, like I've said, to, to, to think about the cross of Christ being the answer to divisions. But that's exactly what we have here. So let's go through this. If you're an English teacher, by the way, and you're trying to teach somebody how to um, write a, uh, a sentence that's a transition sentence, this is probably the best transition example you could have in all the Bible. In verse 17, we see this. It says, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. So he immediately, just within this one verse, he's looking back and saying, Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. So when he's looking back, what is the issue that he's, he's trying to address here? It's divisions within the church. Some are saying, oh, I'm a Paul. Some are saying, yeah, I'm a Cephas. Well, I'm, I'm of this and I'm of that. Well, of course, the, the greatest one, well, I'm of Jesus. Okay. What is that? When people start doing things like that and they, kind of, and they start boasting about things, what's going on? It's a pride issue. Now listen, pride is something 
That's probably the most weird thing in all the world. It's, it's got a, it's, it's one of those things where it's a disease, but it's a disease that is unlike any other because it's the only disease known to man that makes everybody else sick except the person who has it. <laughs> now, when we think about pride, we're thinking about boasting. Oh, man, I'm bo- now, you've been a part of that. If you were a kid, how many of you have participated? Oh, my dad could beat up your dad. <laughs> yeah, my dad could beat up your dad. My dad probably could have beat up your dad. He was, a, he was an amateur boxer, so take that. But how about this? If you're a lady, oh, my, my mommy's prettier than your mommy. I can see it now. That's all boasting. It's just pride. And so Paul, in dealing with pride, says, takes them to the cross. That's where the connection comes in. Now, is this the biggest issue that he faces here? You know, with all the issues that are in the Corinthian church, it seems like divisions would be the one he would tackle first? I don't know. That seems odd to me. Why? Well, there's incest in the church. There's divorce in the church. There's prostitution in the church. They don't understand the, the um, don't have a proper understanding of the resurrection. They're messing up the Lord's Supper. But what does he jump into? Divisions. Now, it's a big deal. Like we said, there's very few places you can go in the Bible and find where other churches had a problem with prostitution. Very few places you can go where, oh, they have a big problem with um, incest. Paul doesn't address those things, and neither does Peter, and that in a number of other areas. But almost all of them have to address divisions in the church. So I'm saying that it is the biggest issue that Paul has to deal with also, I'm saying that for not because it's just the first thing he deals with, but it's the longest thing he deals with. He covers four chapters. We don't get to the second issue in this church until we get to the fifth chapter. There's only 16 chapters in, in 1 Corinthians. That's 25% of the book is devoted to this issue and its solution. That tells me, yep, he probably needs to address it. So, just on the fact that many churches have the issue and the fact that he addresses it first and, it, and he spends the most time on this issue than any other issue, more so than the resurrection of Christ, more so than uh, on any kind of um, issues about prostitution or as important as those are. And the reason why is it carries over all the issue of the cross of Christ carries over into almost all of those other issues. It's mentioned in almost every single issue at some point, either the blood of Christ, crucifixion of Christ, the unification of Christ around the cross is mentioned over and over again in 1 Corinthians and almost every other issue. So as we get to the transition, for Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ be of no effect. Is Paul saying that baptism is not important? Is he saying that it's essential to salvation? Here's what Paul's saying about baptism, and this is what the scripture says. That baptism is not essential for salvation, but it is important. Now, why is it important? It's because it's first a demonstration 
as well as a proclamation. It's a demonstration of what happened to you and me when we came to know Christ. We were buried, our old self was buried with Christ, and we were raised to walk in newness of life. That's what baptism pictures. And so it's, a, it's very much a demonstration of what happened to us, but it's also a proclamation to the world. We're proclaiming to the world, we're following Christ. And people that say, well, I don't want to be baptized, you have to question that. You have to see why wouldn't a person want to be baptized. In some societies, that's the, that's the deciding factor on whether a person has finally made their commitment to Christ. In other words, if they're not baptized, we still have a hope that we can get them back into our beliefs and not be a Christian. But once they're baptized, sometimes that, okay, that's the final straw. They've made that public um, uh, announcement that they're following Christ. I guess that's over. I guess they really are. So, as we get into this, boy, there's so much to cover here. I, I promise I won't get you too long-winded. But when it says the, the wisdom of, the, of, of words, later Paul talks about that himself. He says it, again, two or three times in the next chapter. And then later he even says, you know, I, I, I wasn't eloquent. Some people even accuse me of being a bad speaker. That, you know, I'm, I'm repulsive in my looks and I'm repulsive uh, in my speech. Although it's powerful, people don't like it. He says that later on. So what we're saying here is that it's, there's power in the gospel. And it's, if it's presented as the wisdom of man. Now that's important to understand in the Corinthian, the, uh, Corinthian um, society because of this. They were steeped in philosophy. They were steeped in public speaking. Sometimes, actually, they were more enamored by how the speaker presented his case, how he manipulated the language, more so than what the speaker said in, in context. It was, wow, that guy was a good speaker, or that guy was this or that, and, and philosophy. Philosophy is an interesting word. It comes from two Greek words meaning love of wisdom. So it's phileo, love, and then um, the, the word sophia, meaning wise. So the people love wisdom. The problem is they're seeking wisdom in all the wrong places. And so with Paul, he's saying, I don't want to come to you just with, with words of wisdom, like eloquent speech and so on. I want to come to you with the power of God. So he says in, in verse 18, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Now, foolishness is an interesting word. It's where we get our word moron or moronic. So to the world, when we're preaching the cross, it's moronic. I mean, it's just like this person's a moron. It's stupid, but I don't get it. I don't even want to get it. It's just, it makes no sense to me. And that's what the world is viewing when we, when, we, when we preach the cross of Christ. It's foolishness to them because they're perishing. They're in the process of perishing. And they're storing up for themselves more judgment upon themselves. Scripture is clear about that. So when we say the power of God, that's where, power is where we get the word dynamite. So this is, but for us, it's a dynamite. It makes sense. And we'll talk more about that in a minute. But then he does something what I think is kind of interesting. He goes back and he quotes 
a verse in Isaiah. Now, we should all know that. I mean, we've been through Isaiah. But he says, he says this, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Now, what's the situation that he's quoting here? It's kind of interesting. You remember the Assyrian Empire. We've, we've talked about that in, in Isaiah. We've read about it. Syrian Empire had, had basically um, uh, conquered all of the Middle East, all except for Egypt at this time. We have um, Shennacherib. He's, he's at, right at the gate of, of, um, of Jerusalem. He's taken all of Israel, the northern kingdom. He's taken almost all of the southern kingdom. The only thing left basically is the city. And we have Hezekiah. By the way, he's, um, Shennacherib said, said this of, of um of Hezekiah when, you, when you, he was writing in his annals. He said Hezekiah was in his, um, in his um, home. He said he was like a, a, um, a, caged, a, a caged bird. So that's basically where he was. And, and, and he was actually taunting Israel and said, you think your God can, can deliver you? Nobody else has been able to deliver. So the wisdom of the world would say, hey, they're right. How are, we going to, how are we, just this little city of Jerusalem, going to stand against all of this? It's, it's almost impossible. It it's, can't be done. So they go to sleep at night. Hezekiah prays to the Lord. Next morning they get up. One angel, 186,000 Syrians dead. Dead bodies all around. They pack up and they go home. Sennacherib goes home and he goes to the temple. While he's, while he's praying in the temple, his, his own... Two of his sons kill him. So he goes home and he's dead. Hezekiah goes back or stays home. He goes to the temple, worships God, and he lives. That's the power of God. And that's what he's talking about here. That's the kind of power that we're talking about when we say that we're preaching to us. It's the power of God. Now, let's go to verse 20. He says this. He asks three questions that all have the same answer. No, basically the answer is nowhere. And that is this. It says, where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? Now, the wisdom of the world is, is something that um, is interesting in that it all centers around man's thinking. You know, I, was, I looked up a... Um, a philosophy I thought was kind of interesting. Um, it's called, and you've heard of it, the yin and yang. It's a Chinese philosophy. And really it goes kind of like this. You draw a big circle. And then you go, um, you draw a couple of teardrops, equal teardrops to fill up that circle. One, part of the, one teardrop is black, and in, inside it's got a white dot. The other's white, and inside it's got a black dot. And it says, hey, this is a, it's just the equilibrium of things. You got light, you got darkness, you got heat, you got cold, you got, you got pain, you got, you know, to go. So, and so, you know, you list all these things that are opposite. So when you get to the end, you know what you have? I have no idea. I really don't. I mean, it's like, why would you do this? It's, it's pretty, obvious, pretty obvious. You have night, you have day. I get it. You have pain, you have pleasure. Okay. I don't have to do man's philosophy to figure that out. I mean, common sense is telling me everything this thing is trying to tell me. But so man's wisdom is, they're thinking, people think they're so smart. 
when it's, if they don't have God smart, they're not smart at all. So they ask, where is the wise? In other words, where is the person who can really th think they're wise? Where is the scribe? Of course, we know what a scribe is, somebody who's, who's, who's um, steeped in the law and can really explain the law. And then where is the disputer of this age? And actually, there, a, a good translation, that where is the brilliant debater? And the answer to that, there's nowhere. Hasn't God made foolish all of those things? And the answer is absolutely yes. He has made foolish. Now, in verse 21, it says, For the wisdom of God, for since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God. Through its own wisdom, it didn't know God. When was the last time you read Romans 1? Let's turn there real quick. Let's Romans 1, the first, the first chapter. And we'll begin, we, there's a lot we could read, but let's just begin in verse 18, okay? Verse 18 says this, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of man who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Verse 19, Because what may be known of God is manifest to them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise... They became fools and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into the image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them over and so on. Professing themselves to be wise. God has demonstrated himself just in the natural realm. And when we, in, in the natural realm, when we start um, turning our back on what God has already revealed, then our hearts become darkened. We can't see the light. We can't understand. So when God gives initial revelation, that's called general revelation, that's the first thing that declares the glory of God and declares the wisdom of God. Then when we have specific revelation, we're, it's way past our understanding because we didn't even understand the general revelation of God. And that's what, what, God's, that's what Paul is saying here. For since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom didn't know God, it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. The next verse, for Jews request a sign and Greek seeks after wisdom. Now, did, did God give signs to Jews through Jesus? Multiple signs he gave. At least five just in the book, book of John alone, but every miracle was a sign. Every miracle was a sign, but they rejected that. What did they want? Give us another sign. Give us another sign. I love Jesus' answer when he said, to this generation, no sign will be given except the sign of Jonah. And he said, just as Jonah was in the belly for three days and three nights, so must the Son of Man, and so on. Now, if you read Jonah and all you see is a story about Jonah, or you see a story about a big fish, or swallow. You've missed the point. Jesus is telling you the point of that story. And the point of that story is 
death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you don't see that, and if you're a teacher, you don't teach that, you're, you're teaching amiss. You're not teaching the full counsel of God. Jonah is about Jesus Christ, death, burial, and resurrection. So they had multiple signs. But then there's it, it, an interesting little phrase here in verse 22. It says, Greeks seek after wisdom. Well, wait a minute. I thought they were already wise. You know, in their own heart, they knew that they were not wise. That's why they're seeking wisdom. They're seeking after wisdom. No matter how much wisdom they have, it's not enough because they know there's more because they know they don't have it. When Paul was in Athens, he was walking into Athens and he sees all this worship of multiple gods. And, he, and it says later about the, and of course he deals with the, with the philosophers in that, that area. As soon as they hear about the resurrection, they don't want to hear anymore. But it said, those people in Athens, what did they do? It said, they, every day they were, had itchy ears. They wanted to hear what new thing was going to be said. What new thing? They were always seeking wisdom, but never finding it. Because if you don't find it in the Lord Jesus Christ, you've missed wisdom. Wisdom is only found in God. Let's go on to verse 22. It says, but we preach Christ crucified. In other words, everything that's, that we preach to the Jew, it's not enough. We have more signs. To a Greek, it's foolishness. They're seeking after wisdom. It says, but we preach Christ crucified. Now, how is that accepted when we preach Christ crucified? It says, to the Jew, it's a stumbling block, and to the Greeks, foolishness. It's a stumbling block in a lot of areas to Jews. The first stumbling block would be this. It says in Deuteronomy 20, no, 21, only a person uh, that is accursed will hang on a tree. Well, how can the Messiah be cursed? How can a Messiah be one that's dead, that's dying? Not only that, what were the Jews looking for? The Jews have always had a military leader. They've always had somebody to lead them in battle, somebody to deliver them, somebody that they could look up to. But here's Jesus, born in a manger. Not a military leader, but to establish his kingdom, he's here on earth. But he's not what they're looking for. How can a military leader die on the cross? How can he be? It just doesn't fit their picture. Jesus is a stumbling block, and the cross is a stumbling block in many, many areas to a, to a Jew. You know, today, in most Jewish synagogues, they don't even read Isaiah, Isaiah 53. You know why? It talks about Jesus. And they can't explain it away. For years, they would read it. Uh, the rabbis would read it. People would come up afterwards and say, yeah, but what about this? Isn't he talking about this and that? And it points to, to, it points to the Messiah. So instead of being in a position that, to explain it, yeah, that is the Messiah, they can't explain it because they're trying to explain it away. And so now they don't read it at all. We have a Christian friend. I mean, I'm, I'm sorry, we have a Jewish friend. We ask her, well, what do you think about Jesus? She says, I don't. I don't think about him at all. It's just not what we do. We don't think about Jesus. The cross is a stumbling block to Jews. It's a stumbling block even to Muslims. Here's what the Muslim says about Jesus dying on the cross. He didn't. And listen to this one. He didn't die on the cross. 
there was a man that looked like him. Actually, Jesus went uh, kind of like Enoch, right up to heaven. He didn't die. But what they did was get a man that looked just like Jesus to take his place so that he died on the cross, but it really wasn't Jesus. Now that one, that takes a lot of faith to believe that one. But so the cross is a stumbling block to not only Jews, but to a lot of people. But to the Greeks, it's really ridiculous. And here's one of the reasons why. To the Greeks, if, you, if they worship a, a Greek god, they think that that god is way out there and he's apathetic toward man. He would never die for man. He doesn't even care what man's doing. He doesn't care. So to, the, to, a, to a, a Greek philosopher or to a Greek who is steeped in philosophy, and they were, I mean, Athens was only 45 miles from Corinth, and, and even in that, what do we have in Athens? Man, we have all kinds of, of philosophies going on. So it's just foolishness. It just doesn't make sense. You know, in some respects, I have to agree with them. I mean, why would God die for you and me? I don't know. It doesn't make sense. Romans 5 kind of gives us a picture of that. Let me read that to you. It says, For when we were still without strength in due time, like in the fullness of time, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely would a righteous man die, but perhaps a good man would, uh, a good man, someone would, would dare to die. But God demonstrated his own love toward us. We were neither good nor noble. We don't fall into any of those categories. But God demonstrated his love toward us. And while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Does that make sense to you? You, would, would you really send your son to die for somebody that was worthless? I mean, that was sinful? I mean, you know, you, I'm not sure you would do it for somebody who was a good man. Would you really send your son to do that? I mean, there's a lot about the Christian life that doesn't make sense in terms of human logic. But when you see it from God's point of view, it makes perfect sense. And that's what godly wisdom is. It's seeing life from God's point of view. That's what wisdom is. When I heard a man say this, and I, th- I think it's so true. God's will is exactly what you would want if you knew all the facts. We never know all the facts. We never know all the facts from the past. We never know all the facts of the present. We never know all the facts from the future. God does. And so if we had all the facts like God does... We would want exactly what God wants for our life because we would have all the facts. So, it's foolishness to a, to a Greek and it's a stumbling block to the Jews. But the message of the cross is foolishness to those, but not to us. Now, as we get to verse 21, it says, but to those who are called. Now, Paul has already used that word. He said he was called. He said the Corinthians were called. And right here, it says, for those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. And then we see that and we say, oh, those Jews and those Greeks. Now, put your thinking cap on. Who are the Greeks? It's us. 
Paul is saying, in all of the realm of the world, there's, there's only um, two groups, saved and unsaved. That's it. Within the unsaved group, you have Jews and Gentiles, or Jews and Greeks. And in the saved world, guess what we have? Jews and Greeks, or Jews and Gentiles. So at one point, you and I fell exactly into this spot. We were part of the Jew-Gentile group that rejected Christ. You weren't always saved. You weren't always a Christian. You weren't always a believer. At some point, you fit this category. You fit the unsaved. But what was the difference? What makes the difference? It says, but to those who are called, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. The very thing that the Jew and the Greek is looking for is exactly found in the cross of Christ. The very thing. So it seems impossible. And doesn't it? I mean, here's a, here's a Jew and a Greek. They look at the, the message of the cross and they go, it's foolishness. It's a stumbling block. It makes no sense. And the description of an unsaved person goes something like this. He's blind. He's deaf. He's dead. Can't see God, can't hear God, doesn't respond to God. So you give an invitation, hey, dead person, come on up. What, what makes that dead person alive? Well, it's, it's his smarts. He's, he's just a smart guy. No. Oh, he just figured it all out. No. Now, he could have an emotional spasm and not be saved. I'll admit that. But if you're saved, it's only because God called you. It's because God revealed to you in your heart. That's exactly what Ephesians 2 says. Actually, the whole book of Ephesians, is, especially in the first two chapters, or two and a half chapters, that's what it's about. It's about what God does to call sinners to himself. Now, what kind of power does it take to regenerate a man, regenerate a woman? Here's what it says. Ephesians 2. You know, it, it, Paul is, is preaching and he's, or he's saying, I'm going to pray for you, you know, that, you'll, that your understanding will be enlightened and so on, that you'll understand certain things. And he talks about how that we will actually see the mighty power of God. And what kind of power is that, he says? It's the same power that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and, and seated him at his right hand. That's the same kind of power. But that's not all he did. He said, and he gave him a name which is above every name. I mean, every name. Every single name. This is, this is resurrection power. And therefore, in the first part of chapter 2, Paul can say, and you, he made alive. It's that, that, that kind of power. It's the same resurrection power that's, that brought Christ from the dead. Is the same resurrection power that actually touches your heart, my heart, and, and makes us a child of God. If it, without that, it's still foolishness. It's still a stumbling block. The world is like that. Jesus gives us the illustration of a broad way and a narrow way. Listen, you don't need a broad way for a, for a small amount of people. You need a narrow way. And you don't need a narrow way for a large amount of people. Right? So what is he saying in that? He's saying there's a, it's very few that find, find that. Very few that actually become saved. Now, you would like to think that everybody, 
that we present the gospel to will respond. Listen, that's not the case. It has not been your, your experience. It's not been my experience. It wasn't Jesus' experience. It wasn't Paul's experience. It's nobody's experience. But unless God calls, then nobody is saved. It takes divine intervention to raise a dead person to life. It take, whether it's physical or spiritual, it takes divine intervention. And let's go on. It says in verse 22, because the foolishness of God is wiser than man and the weakness of God is stronger than man. Now that's just a, a, a comparison. Nobody's saying God is weak and nobody's saying that God is not, is not wise. We're just saying that and, and from a human point, point of view, you could, the, the, the lowest thing that God could do is so much greater than the greatest thing that man could do. It's really, it's just a comparison is all it is. So that's the message, Christ crucified. That's the message of, the, of salvation. Now, let's, let's look at the, the, the men and women of salvation, and I think you'll, you'll understand this a little bit even better. It says, For you see your calling, brethren, not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, and not many noble are called. Now these are things that actually mean a lot to the people in Corinth. That if you were born in the right family, if you had the right position, if you had the right amount of money, boy, these were important things in, in life. It says, but it's not that none of those are called. So don't read that wrong and say, it, no noblemen are called, nobody, nobody wise, nobody mighty, nobody noble. No, that's not what it says. That says not many. I always find it interesting when we look in, in the Gospels and we see the story of um, where Jesus is talking about um, the, the rich man, how hard it is for him to get into heaven. At one point he says, it's easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to go to heaven. Now, so a lot of people say, oh, that eye of the needle, that was a, um, that was a hole in the wall that, a, that camels had to go through, kind of get on their knees and humble themselves and get into, into the... No, no, no. That, that's a different word altogether. The word he's using here is actually either a surgical needle or a sewing needle. That's small, isn't it? And it, it corresponds to the response that the disciples had. The context then would be something like this. It's, it's um, easier for a rich man to go through an eye of a needle than, a, um, than to get into heaven. Well, my response to that would be just like the disciples. Well, that's impossible then. What's God's response? With man... It could be impossible, but with God, nothing is impossible. All things are possible with God. When you and I come to God and come to Christ, it's only because all things are possible with God. That's the key. So he's not saying that there's nobody, but look at the description. And I look around, and it kind of fits us, doesn't it? Well, God has chosen the... Um, it says... Foolish things of the world, weak things of the world, base things of the world, things which are despised, the things which are not. Now, you never thought about yourself as a not, but that's what it says. The things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are. Now, if we look back on many of the people that come to Christ, the first announcement of Christ's birth, was that to noble people? To shepherds, well, publicly, to shepherds, stinky shepherds, lowly 
shepherds. Not noble, not considered wise, not considered mighty. Shepherds. Little old Zacchaeus, you know, wee little man, despised. Nobody liked him. The only reason Romans put up with him is because they collected taxes, but most of the people in his own religion, the Jews, they couldn't stand him. God chose him. You know, you could just go on and on of the people that God chooses. And we could see John the Baptist. The guy ate locusts. Locusts. Have you ever tried locusts, by the way? Chocolate covered I have, and it's not too bad if it has enough chocolate on it. But, but he didn't have that. Chocolate, honey. Kind of clothes he wore. But you know what? His message was drawing people. God doesn't, doesn't need our nobility. He doesn't need our money. When we give, it's not because God's poor. God's not saying, please give, I'm poor. No. God doesn't need anything we have except our obedience and love. That's all he's looking for. So those are the kind of people that God chooses. Now, why does he choose those kind of people? Why you? Why me? Why not the elevated? It seems like when some famous person becomes, oh, we're so excited, some famous person came to Christ. Yeah, I can just see Jesus. Oh, finally, this person came. Oh, he's famous. He's going to really help me. No, that's not the way it is. Look at this next verse. I love this verse. Always answers. Verses that answer the why questions are great, aren't they? They're just great. It says, that no flesh should glory or boast or brag in his presence. Now we get the biggest hint of why Paul is addressing the wisdom of God in salvation to answer the issue of divisions. Why? Because these people are boasting. And what Paul is saying that in salvation, if you go back to your salvation experience, go back to your roots, then you'll see that no flesh should glory in his presence. That's the answer to the deal. Once you and I realize who we are in Christ and why we are in Christ and who God is, where is boasting? It's gone. There is no boasting. And Paul says that's the answer to boasting. That's, and boasting leads to divisions. And the divisions in the church can be answered by one simple thing. Let's go back to the, the, the cross of Christ and see exactly who you are, who Christ is. You were nothing, and Christ saved you. You were not noble. Christ saved you. That's the answer. You know, anytime you have a conflict in a church, it takes at least two people. Wouldn't you agree? I mean, can you have a conflict in yourself and all of a sudden the church splits? No. You got to have at least two people. And you got to have two people that think that they're right. And you got to have two people that won't give. And you got to have two people that are so prideful they won't humble themselves before the other. It only takes one other person to say, if you have two, two people in disagreement, only one of them has to say, okay, you're right. And we don't have a division anymore. It only takes one. But division always takes two people, not one. And so if we will humble ourselves and see that we are nothing, that, that what the world considers wise, God considers foolish. And what the world considers foolish, God considers wise. And that we have nothing to boast about because Christ has done everything. Now, how do we get that? Listen, these next verses, let's go to the next few verses. 
There's so many passages we could point to here, but we just don't have time to do all of it. But please, I would just encourage you, find verses that, that just um, support these other verses. And that's the way it is in the Bible. The Bible is a tapestry of, of, of verses that harmonize so beautifully with what's going on. But here's what in the next verse. Verse 30. This was quoted earlier. Now watch this. Of him you are in Christ Jesus. I'm going to repeat that. Of him you are in Christ Jesus. Well, that takes away all boasting right there. Where is boasting? Can't be in me. Not in, I didn't do anything. It's of him you are in Christ Jesus. Who has become for us wisdom from God. The very thing that, that the Greeks are looking for are found in Christ. They're not found apart from Christ. They're found in Christ. I love what Colossians 2.3 says, talking about Christ. It says, in him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Wow. Hey, all you philosophers, all you wise people, all you people that think that you're so smart, in him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Knowledge apart from Christ is not knowledge at all. You miss the point. You're looking for, for knowledge and wisdom in all the wrong places if, you have, if you're looking at it apart from Christ. So, it says, For of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Boy, that takes away boasting, doesn't it? My righteousness? You, you probably know the verse in... in um, um, 2 Corinthians 5.21 He who knew no sin became sin for us that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. What are we talking about here? We're talking about imputation. We're talking about not my righteousness, but his. Not my wisdom, but his. We're talking about not my sanctification, but his. I'm going to want to go on to... to um, read something here that I think is very, very enlightening. Talking about um, sanctification, and it's kind of hard to explain. You know, in all of these things, we see a a, a two-sided coin. We see a reality of position, but we also see a reality of experience. For instance, um, when we get to righteousness, we, we are not righteous of our own, but yet we're called to be righteous. So we're gonna, we, we need to work at being righteous, but yet positionally we are, we are righteous in God's sight. When he looks down, he sees a righteous person. Does he see a righteous person doing all righteous acts? No, but when he sees a righteous person, he should see a person who's doing righteous acts. Sanctification is, is the same way in, in a lot of areas. But Michelangelo and by the way, I'm not, a, not an artist. I, I'm not a, a sculptor. So it's not that I'm such a cultured person. But I've always been um, interested in, a, in a, um, an illustration I heard years ago. And I think they probably, probably got the illustration wrong. And I'll, I'm going to get it right for you here in a second. But the illustration went something like this. There's a picture of a horse. Or no, a sculptor of a horse. A sculptor of a horse. Okay, beautiful. Beautiful. And the guy that did it is standing there, and somebody says, how did you do that? And he says, well, I just chipped away everything that wasn't horse. 
Well, you know, Michelangelo, I think they got that from Michelangelo. They got mixed up and didn't know what, what he was saying. Because here's what Michelangelo said. He was asked about um, the, uh, I think, a sculpture of, of either an angel or, or, a, um, or uh, King David. But he says this. He said, the sculpture is already complete within the marble block before I ever start my work. It is already there. I just have to chisel away the superfluous material. Again, he says this, every block of stone has a statue inside of it, and it is the task of the sculptor to release it. Now, here's the one I like the most. He says, I saw the angel in this marble and carved it until I set it free. That's what sanctification is. But Jesus, I mean, God said it best through um, Paul in Romans 8, when he says that you are being formed into the image of Christ. How does God do that? He just chips away everything that's not Jesus. How does he do that? Trials, tribulations, discipline, iron upon iron, hearing the word, obeying the word. It's a process. And God is just chipping away at you and me everything that's not Christ. That's a great picture of sanctification. That's a great picture that Michelangelo gives us. That's what God is doing in us. Now, it also says redemption. Isn't it amazing that God, that Jesus has become all of these things for us? Just amazing to me. And I love what First Peter, or what Peter says when he's speaking to the church, the, the dispersed church, that, and, and there were many of them. He's talking about the redemption, he says that, that you were redeemed not with perishable seeds like silver and gold, but by the precious blood of Christ. That's your redemption. It's in Christ. You don't redeem yourself. The redemption actually in, in the New Testament, there's a number of different Greek words that are used for redemption, and they all describe different areas. Maybe the price, like the blood of Christ. Maybe the area that we were, or the, the style, lifestyle that we were out of, that we were um, saved out of could be the and it generally is the slave market of sin and, and, and so on and even the permanence of our rede- redemption and it's eternal never to go back all of those words are tied uh, are tied up in, the, in multiple Greek words to describe our redemption in Christ and so it's a permanent thing but Christ has become for us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption and then the last verse He repeats it almost like he's repeating it from earlier. He says that as it is written, he that glories, let him glory in the Lord. And I should say, let me add this. He that glories, let him glory only in the Lord. You know, Paul actually said that. He says, I'm not going to glory in anything except the cross of Christ. He says that in, in, in the book of Galatians. So there's a positive boasting Oh, there's a, most, of it, most of our boasting is not good. It causes divisions. But there is a positive boasting, and that is I'm going to boast in the Lord. Not in myself, not in you, not in our preacher, not in the denomination, not in my wealth, not in my so-called wisdom. I'm going to boast only in the Lord. That's the answer to the issue that Paul addresses here on divisions in the church. Boast only in the Lord. And if we're all only boasting only in the Lord, 
There's no divisions. It's as simple as that. Now, there's some other applications in this because there's so many theological themes that run through this particular passage. One of the applications is this. When we witness, we know that God has called people. So therefore, that's a positive thing. As I witness, why do I witness? Because I know that God has called out certain people for salvation. I know that. So therefore, who are they? I don't know. How do I find out? I witness and find out. So that's a positive thing. It's it's an encouragement. It's to know that God has called. Therefore, I just need to be the instrument to to spread spread the message. There's also another thing, and that is, in terms of, of just divisions in the church, humility is the opposite of pride. Wouldn't you agree? Shake your head up and down. That's good. Yeah. Okay. So humility is the opposite of pride. One man's de- defined humility like this, and I, I really like this. He says, says, humility is realizing that everything I am and everything I have comes from God and others in my life. You think about it, that's true. I mean everything. You get up in the morning and take a breath, God was gracious to you. We, we see that in, even in the book of Lamentations. That it's of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed. Now he's talking about the whole nation of Israel. The whole nation of Israel is not consumed. We still have a remnant. But it applies to us in our everyday life as well. It's of the, it's of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed. It, they're new every morning. Great is his faithfulness. So when you get up in the morning, you can say, wow, God is good. I'm humble. He could have killed me last night. But he's faithful. He's, he prom- he, he's, he's given me breath. So even your breath that you take is something that you can say, you know what? I didn't deserve that. But he gives it to me. So everything that you have, everything that you are is a result of God and others every day. Be thankful for that. Divisions in the church, we need to be humble. We need to realize where we came from, who God is, who we are. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your, your word. Your word is, is so clear. We can never seem to exhaust it. We can never have the time to to say all that we would like to say about every single word, every single passage. Father, we realize that all scripture is is equally important. We realize it's it's all profitable. We realize that it's all inspired. We realize that some passages just take more time to understand and more time to, to concentrate on them. So we pray today, Father, that as we've heard the word, that we would go home and be Bereans we would be just like the Bereans, that we would study and see if these things are so, see if this what God is saying to us applies to us. And Father, we pray that we would be doers of the word and not hearers only. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.